Let's begin. Ready? Recite your bass line. Hi, good evening and thanks for tuning in. Tonight I'm joined with my very good friend Barry Stewart down in London. I'm up in Glasgow so there might be a little bit of a technical glitch here and there but uh, stick with us, I'm sure we'll be fine. And we're just going to be talking about our old band from the early 90s. So I'll just introduce Barry now. Hi Baz, how are you? How you doing man? All good? Cool, cool. First podcast, quite exciting. I know, first podcast, <laughs> first time. I've got a new bit of gear called a Rodecaster Pro, which uh, I've been wanting to practice doing a podcast on, so you're my guinea pig. Let's hope it pans out okay. Excellent. <laughs> so really, just to start off with, a wee bit of background, but I suppose would maybe be interesting. Um, you and I both met at school, didn't we? Yeah. Doug's Academy, 1982. Yeah, that's right. 82, 81? Yeah, so different primary schools, and then we met up in secondary school, and... I think probably became instantly friends in the first year, no? Pretty much, it's like you say, instantly became friends. Friendship revolved around our love of new romantic music, I think it was at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think we were both into different stuff before secondary school and then the new romantic kind of era was really, you know, I guess it was getting a bit into post-punk at that point as well. And there was just so much good music about. Yeah, I think certainly for me, I started school, my biggest love was discovering Gary Newman, really, in, in first year. I mean, I'd heard him, I'd heard Cars and that before, but I hadn't really listened to it properly, but then yeah. managed to get a swap, I think I swapped a Tonka truck for three <laughs> Gary Newman singles to this guy that I knew, Tonka truck was for his son. Right. He gave me Cars and our friends electric, and I can't remember what the other one was, I was Complex. That's a pretty good deal. And uh, yeah, well, that was it, that was the start of the love affair, straight away, I just thought <laughs> Newman was, was the new king. Yeah, I mean, there's so many bands at that time that just released a classic album. Yeah. Because yeah, they had Human League as well, which, you know, they released Dare, and it was just a phenomenal time for quality. And yeah, there was a lot of money in music back then, so the production values were just oh, yeah. out of this world. There was a lot of new technology as well available in those days. You know, synths were really just coming into their own, and mm -hmm. all of a sudden you were able to program sequencers and drum machines, and I think it opened up the doors to a new way of writing for a lot of people, and obviously the sound morphed with it. Yeah, I mean, I think with the uh, with the sequencer side of it, definitely improved the quality of it and made it more viable for a kind of pop market. You know, if you look at like Depeche Modes, you know, they were very capable live because they had sequencers running. And then you look at bands like Human League in 78, 79, they were playing, you know, old uh, synths, um, old modular synths. Yeah. It just didn't have that kind of snappiness that you needed for a pop sound. Yeah, you're right, absolutely. Yeah, you and I also had an early love of uh, photography mm. when we first started hanging out. I remember my dad gave me an old uh, Russian, remember? That old Russian SLR camera. Was that Zenit? <laughs> I can't remember what it was. <laughs> but my God, man, that was a, that was a bit of pre-war kit. But uh -huh. brilliant, you know, loved, loved getting my hands on it and being able to take proper photographs. And you and I used to spend many a winter's evening mm -hmm. uh, roaming the streets looking for <laughs> arty photographic opportunities. <laughs> and also using our using ourselves as models because we, we didn't have anybody else to use. <laughs> 
<laughs> so there's yeah. a lot of photographs of that period of you and me just because it was that state of our around. Yeah. And some quite compromising positions as well. <laughs> I remember that one we took of, uh, of you in leather, well, the PVC strides. Yeah, yeah. And uh, quite a lot of makeup. <laughs> and a weird tasseled scarf over your head. That's you right, I do. With a red sheet round the back. So it looked as if it was a sort of, yeah, I don't know what it was supposed to look like. But <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. A lot of crazy snaps. I mean, you've got to think what did our mum and dad think of us at that time, you know? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they must have thought, well, uh, maybe they're exploring their sexuality or... <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think my dad still has, still has questions even now. <laughs> 53 years old and married, but he's still not quite convinced. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so photography was great and all that. Love of music was brilliant. We went to a few gigs together. Yeah. And then uh, as we left school, we drifted a wee bit apart. I went down to... Uh, Manchester to do a sound engineering course and then mm-hmm. about six months or so later you came down for a visit didn't you and you decided oh this looks quite cool I think I might just stay here <laughs> and proceeded to plank your arse firmly in my floor of my bedsit for uh, for the duration of our time down there but um, yeah that's how that, it happened I can't deny it <laughs> it was a good time so it was great wasn't it it was really cool you know you'd always said to me well you know come down and visit me and um uh, I did a, a hitching journey, so I hitched from Glasgow to London, uh, and then London, uh, I was heading back up to Glasgow, and I thought, I'll just stop in Manchester and see Stuart, and I kind of never left, really. <laughs> it was good times. Our musical tastes had both developed a wee bit since our early days, right enough, we were listening to a lot more harder stuff, weren't we? Well, not as hard as it became later on, but um, certainly starting to listen to more gothy stuff like Sister of Mercy and yeah. The Cure, at least I was, Cocktail Twins, which I hadn't really listened to much before I went to Manchester. Yeah. Susie the Banshees. This Mortal Coil. I'm just going to come to that. I remember the night very well that we were sitting in my room and you said to me, have you heard this band, This Mortal Coil? I'm like, no. Yeah, yeah. And it was quite late at night and I think we might have had a wee drink we were fairly mellow. Yeah. And you put this album on. I remember lying in my bed thinking, and this was the days when we were listening to it on a Walkman with shitty little tinny speakers, remember? <laughs> I do. The sound quality was absolutely <laughs> awful. But nevertheless, it didn't hide the beauty of the album. And, yeah. And, yeah. I became absolutely obsessed with it. I just started listening to that over and over and over again. And then the uh, same with, um, what was the album called? Um, Pellegrine Shadow was the one that we started with. Yeah, that's right. It'll End in Tears was the first It'll one. End in Tears, that was the first one. That was the one with the beautiful song that um, Elizabeth Fraser sings. Yeah, yeah. Song of the Siren. Song of the Siren, yeah. Classic. Which has got a really sad story behind it, but like, that'll be yeah. for another podcast. <laughs> It wasn't until years later that I realised that that was actually a cover of, was it Jeff Beck that did the original? No, no, it's not Jeff Beck, it's uh, Jeff Buckley. Jeff Buckley, that's right. It's weird because, uh, well, we're going to do the story anyway. So um, Elizabeth Fraser went out with Buckley's son and they were a couple and uh, he died. Uh, He drowned which kind of like tunes quite well with the lyrics of Song to a Siren. Yeah, yeah. So she'd already covered it, but then he died, you know. So it's got a really interesting, uh, you know, very sad story behind it. I mean, lyrics have always been a, a big part of my love of music. It was during about that time I was also playing with my other pal, Kevin Fleming. Uh, we had a band called Tempest. We were just out of school, really. I remember the uh, first time I wrote a lyric for a song, mm-hmm. I was so chuffed to it. I remember taking it up to Kev and uh, him looking at it and bursting out laughing. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I was like, what's wrong with that? And they went, dude, these lyrics are shite. <laughs> All right, okay then. 
So, yeah, that was my first experience of being disillusioned by my public. But I guess it didn't put you off. No, 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 not at all, not at all. Pressed on, got better at it. Kev and I are still, to this day, still uh, making music. But anyway, moving on, we're not talking about Tempest, we're talking about Decon tonight. So, but we're down in Manchester, you and I spent a lot of time together going to clubs and listening to a lot of goth music. And I think one night, one of the many nights that we spent having a, a glass of Merry down, we came up with the idea of starting a band that was a bit different. Yeah. You know, I think we wanted to try and sound a wee bit different from everyone else. Mm-hmm. I was quite interested in sampling at the time, although I hadn't actually owned a sampler at college, I was playing with one and I remember thinking, this is the way forward. And uh, you and I talking about maybe you know trying something when mm-hmm. we moved back home or when I get back to Glasgow because we didn't have any gear at the time in Manchester. Yeah, we were both totally skint, you know, absolutely zero coinage. So the little gear that I did have was uh, up in Glasgow, and I'm quite glad it was because remember the flat got burgled. Yeah, that's right. One time, yeah. and we lost all our cameras. Mm. I mean, I only had a, a few bits and bobs at the time, but if I'd lost the Moog and the Juno Six and all that, uh, I'd have been absolutely gutted. So I was quite glad. It was, it'd been very difficult to come back from that. You know. I don't think I would have. I think I was probably just gonna. Mm. That's it. But um, so we decided we would start something a bit different. But obviously we're still there in Manchester at the time. No way of doing it. Mm. So it was all chat over a few babies. Um, come up with the name Decon Ninety. Do you remember where that came from? Well, I think I'd, I was quite interested in the word deconstruction. That's right. At the time, and I was thinking it's it's just a really cool word. And you know, I was I was too young to understand what I actually stood for. But it seemed to kind of like describe something that. I wanted to do with the music. So in a way, it was kind of using the the name as a bit of a driver for, you know, how we would sound or how it sounded in my head anyway. Yeah. And then um, I think you contributed uh, the, the last part to the name. What, the 90? Yeah, let's make a Deconstruction 90 or Decon 90. And I thought, yeah, you know, it sounds kind of not futuristic because it actually was 1990 but the, was it not 89 we came up with it well yeah it was 80 but it's only it's not very futuristic uh, a year no no <laughs> I heard but I think we decided that we would call it 90 because that was when the band was going to start that's when we were going to take the world by storm 1990 yeah it's kind of given ourselves a deadline yeah. which I think we probably needed so Manchester was great loved our time down there we get back to the house and much to my uh, mother and father's horror, I had turned into a goth in the time I'd been down in Manchester. <laughs> so it was all black, black hair. Everyone was uh, very much goth yep. orientated, including uh, within two weeks of being back home, I'd painted my room black. Yeah, you built an altar in your bedroom, basically. <laughs> yeah, painted a, a, an occult symbol <laughs> on, the, on the wall and all that. You know, it was all very dark <laughs> straight away. I think my dad were quite wise about that. But to be fair to them, they actually, you know, they actually put up with me and put up with us. Yeah. You would come over and we'd be sitting in my room making a, a racket because really, let's face it, we couldn't really play anything. We were pretty shit. Yeah, we are kind of learning what we could do with the equipment. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. So I remember the, what the game-changing thing for us, well, for me, was the sequencer. Uh-huh. Getting the Alyssi's MTT8 yeah. hardware sequencer was just unbelievable. Yeah what difference that made because it meant that you could layer things so you could you know when you're making a track up you could layer sequences upon sequences upon sequences and before you know it you have a very complicated sounding sequence mm-hmm. that sounds that it's been played by a genius but in actual fact I've just gone <laughs> bit by bit step by step yeah. and planted the notes and the other great thing about that sequencer was because it was a hardware one it had um, 16 little buttons on it that's right so you could just trigger the sequence from any point of the song 
you know, the different sequences that you'd made, you could just trigger them. Yeah. So you, at one time you played it, it would sound totally different from the next time. Yeah, yeah. And it was a great way of songwriting because you were able to experiment with mixing things around, cutting instruments out. Yeah. Which we never really had the ability to do before. That's right. Um, I mean, that was great. That was a game changer. I absolutely loved that bit of kit. I wish I'd never sold no. it because I would still use it now. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the band uh, Orbital. Yeah. I think for their live shows, they used to use a bank. That's right. Of uh, at least the 78s. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think, I think you see about eight of them, so the live show could be very kind of uh, intuitive. Well, they were solid bits of kit. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. unlike a PC, certainly in those days, which would be very unreliable, but even now, mm. running anything off a laptop is dodgy. But the, those hardware sequences, you could drop a bomb on them and they would be fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, they were very resilient to getting bumped or yeah, you know, absolutely. whatever thrown about. They were great. It, well, <laughs> I mean, that came later on. We actually started off with, what did we have? We had a Moog Rogue. <laughs> which is probably the worst of the Moog family. Is it? I didn't know that. Well, it's not held in high regard. You know, when folk talk about Moogs, it's a, you know, mini Moog or, yeah. you know, anyone but the Rogue. Of course, yeah. I bought it off my dodgy ex-boss at the time for, I think, 60 quid. That's the thing. I mean, you got a lot of decent equipment because of the, the job you were in. Everyone, everyone was trading their analogue equipment. That's right. Looking for digital equipment. That's right. So is that where you got the Juno 6 as well? The Juno, yeah, the Juno 6 and the delay unit can't remember what that was called but an old analogue delay it was a huge big like a shoebox remember uh-huh. and it yeah, just had yeah. like four knobs at the front it was a minimal ability to change things but what was great about it was because it was analogue mm-hmm. you could change the delay time mm-hmm. in real time as you were jamming and you had these yeah. wonderful weird mental vocal effects that could come from it not just uh, vocals but we used it in quite a few synths and guitars and everything it was just a, yeah. a great bit of kit I think we quite liked it because you know we Obviously, Skinny Puppy were quite a big influence on us. Maybe not straight away, but later on. Later on, and yeah. uh, the you know the effects were fantastic for creating that kind of Skinny Puppy vocal. Yeah, you know, which we really enjoyed. Not not just Skinny Puppy, but Skinny Puppy significantly. I mean, the Skinny Puppy thing came more into the free for me certainly after I came back from Canada. Yeah, because remember there was a six month period when I buggered off to Toronto. That's right. And living over there, there was a specific radio station that just played industrial stuff. Right. So Nine Inch Nails, Skinny Puppy, Early mm. Ministry, mm. KMFDM, you know, all these kind of bands. That's all they played. Yeah, and so that totally took me away from the whole gothy thing uh-huh. and I got right into all that so when I came back to the UK after six months in Canada I turned into a total industrial head yeah. and Nine Inch Nails hadn't really made it over here yet uh, I think we were talking about this the other day going to the gig at King Tut's oh that was an amazing gig that was one of the best gigs of all time because yeah. they were totally unheard of over here mm-hmm. I'd heard them in a lot in Canada and knew they were excellent because um, uh, you, you came back with Pe- Petty Hate Machine Petty Hate Machine had just come out and uh, Vivisect skinny puppy didn't you yeah, yeah. yeah that's right <laughs> I thought to myself that's how I want it to sound I love that whole mm. really aggressive hard and to a lot of folk unlistenable I let people hear skinny puppy and look at me as if I'm totally insane they go what the, f- what the hell is that that's just pure noise yeah as I'm sure you've had yourself with the uh, likes of Coil and <laughs> you know a lot of stuff you listen to is quite out there What's that other, what, what was that band that we went to see Glasgow Green yeah they put on that amazing show Test Department. Oh, Test Department. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was. Uh, the Dalton Fountain yeah. Project. That was awesome. Oh, it was incredible, gig. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's quite out there kind of stuff. I never really get that into the whole industrial weirdness side of things, but. But, but I think because you're exposed to it, you know, you can, you have something that you can contextualize the music within. 
you know, so you're not listening to the kind of uh, the weirdness necessarily of it. You know, you can, you know, something like um, Smothered Hope or various skinny puppy songs you can hear the melody you know you can you can oh, see oh, that yeah, warlock and all that oh, yeah, yeah warlock yeah. you can see the beauty of the, the song structure yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of noise over it but there's still a good song in there and which i absolutely agree with you. i mean that those tracks are are melodic and are great but my favorite ones are the ones that aren't that are really quite obscure that probably no one else likes right. i've always been a bit like that i've always quite liked things that i think i bet no one else likes this so i'm gonna like it Aye. You, know, you know what i mean yeah I mean, <laughs> it's a good way to look at music yeah i thought vivisect <laughs> was a great album but not very user friendly to anyone that's you know uh-huh. it wouldn't be the first album you'd let someone hear to say oh this is going to puppy what do you think that's right I think it would probably scare a lot of folk off yeah yeah uh, Too Dark Park I mean that's a that's a tremendous mm. album, but again, first time you hear that, if that was your first introduction to Skinny Puppy, you go, what the? F- yeah, hell I mean is that? the production is so dense, it's yeah. second to none, yeah, man. It's yeah. absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. So what else did we have in those days? We had um, who was it that had the boss beat? Was it was that yours? The beat? No, I think the boss, uh, the Doctor Rhythm. Was it a Doctor Rhythm? I think that's it right. was yours. Was it? Yeah, I don't know if I had any piece of kit apart from the drum machine, the SR16. Oh, again, that was later on, but that was later on. Yeah, we had the use of the Kevy's um, TR505. Aha. Uh-huh. Which that's I was right. looking on eBay the other day. I cannot believe they're going for four hundred quid. It's <laughs> like what the four hundred quid for a 505? I mean, they're absolutely awful. Yeah. You know, the sounds of them are terrible. But it's an instrument of its time. Yeah, it's got a certain sound to it. And people do look for that, especially now. 80s music's starting to come back a wee bit. Have you noticed that? Absolutely. That track by the weekend, that's, I mean, that's got 80s written all over it. That's a really good band, uh, Com Trues. You know, it's like a reversal of Tom Cruise, Com Trues. All right. And it's, it's so 80s, you know. It's got that lovely drenched kind of 80s production. I've not heard it. I have to look him up. He sounds great. Very good band, yeah. Did we not also have a SH101? Uh, no, I'll come to while. that. That was, no, we had, it was an MC202. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which was, basically, it was the SH101. Yeah. But rather than be the full size with the keyboard on it, it had those wee buttons, remember? It was like a Casio VL tone. Yeah. It just had the wee buttons for a keyboard I didn't have any other MIDI keyboard at the time mm-hmm. I think the idea for it was you'd MIDI into a keyboard that had MIDI but all we had was the Juno 6 at the time and the Rogue neither of which had MIDI and we found playing well I found playing anything on those wee buttons really annoying and irritating uh-huh. and just couldn't <laughs> get into it at all and ended up selling it to a guy at my college course down in Manchester for a pittance because I was skint I think it was one weekend we wanted to go out to Banshee or something and I had no money yeah. and the guy's like oh, I'll give you 40 quid for your MC202 <laughs> I'm like ah, okay fine I don't use it anyway and again looking on eBay recently they go for an absolute fortune because it is an SH101 without the keyboards that's right yeah, yeah, yeah. and the sequencer that's built into it as well so that was foolish I should have probably hung on to that as well but hey ho it's so difficult to hang on to equipment though when you're moving about through the years Mm -hmm. you know it's just impossible I could have had my hands on like a you know a 808 drum machine all all that kind of stuff as well for quite a reasonable price but it just wasn't convenient at the time and I probably would have lost it or so it's unfortunate do you remember the big, huge, heavy it was like it weighed a million tons the Honor string machine do you remember that? I don't remember that, no. It was a big, heavy, horrible, old... I mean, it must have... I know, it was, it's from the 70s. Yeah. But it did have a cracking string sound on it. Right. Probably stayed most of its time up in the barn, up Kevin's, actually. But <laughs> I think it did come down to the house a couple of times. Ah, OK. Um, but 
Yeah, that was our bit of kit, which, which again, if I'd kept and dug it out, put it on eBay, you'd probably get a fortune for it because it was rare back then, so God knows what it'd be like now. But but then we did go on to buy, well, you went on to buy some instruments that uh, changed their sound a lot as well, you know. The S- SQ. The Sonic SQR1 rack. SQR1, yeah. That was my first rack. Well, actually, before I got that, I actually got the Kiwa Kai1. Uh, yeah. Do you remember yeah. that? I mean, that was my first proper synth, really. Uh, mm-hmm. first digital synth that had full MIDI capabilities and all that Yeah, and that was a, like a breath of fresh air it was back I mean that must have been 92 maybe I bought it at the same time as I bought the Sansui 6 track do you remember that Joey yeah yeah Joey <laughs> Joey 6 track you know this was in the days when jo- uh, Joey Deacon <laughs> jo- <laughs> this was the days when the rest of the world uh, were all using 4 tracks that uh, were 4 tracks basically it was a normal cassette machine split into 4 tracks which worked well for the most part yeah but there along came this new one by a company called Sansui who have since gone defunct I think I don't think I've ever seen anything else by them but they brought out this WWS six track mm-hmm. with onboard effects and I just thought oh my god mm. I was absolutely salivating in the mouth <laughs> I've got to have this so went and bought that and the K1 at the same time it was great for the first couple of years it worked a treat yeah but it soon came apparent that there's a reason that most companies don't make a six track it's because tape heads can't really handle yeah you know having that smaller size of a tape head so within about two years years or so maybe three the six track was knackered yeah really that's right and you couldn't record on it at all which was annoying but we just used it as a mixer and it had onboard effects which were great at that time all the Taz cams and all the rest of the gear didn't have anything like that that's right yeah. and mine had a not a bad delay yeah the delay was okay and uh, a half decent reverb yeah. built into it which was which was great I mean we used that all the time it was magic well I think I mean I think it did progress our sound as well you know it, it kind of gave us more options yeah absolutely well because we had more room to play with and it also had its own as well as the six track tape deck right next to it I had a normal tape deck so you could just bounce all your six tracks yeah. onto the normal tape deck as a stereo mix yeah and then go back and bounce back off your normal tape deck back onto six track that's right the stereo mix of your first six tracks and then carry on so I mean, okay, quality wasn't fantastic, which is why the majority of the Tico and stuff sounds as if it's recorded underneath a pillow. But, you know, it was great for us at the time. I mean, that was really where my love of making music and becoming a producer really started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, you know, figuring out best recording techniques to get the most out of that Sansui. It was, uh, it was like a passion of mine. I loved trying to figure out how to make it better every time. Mm. You look back at it now and you think, God, if we had the gear that's available to you now, it would have been a totally different situation for us. Yeah, but, you know, I think that's, you know, Part of why our sound came out the way it did is because we were making the best of the equipment we had. You know, we weren't able to have a shopping list and, uh, you know, the amount of money needed to get whatever we wanted. So we had to kind of make do with, you know, what was around and, you know, really explore the possibilities of that particular piece of kit and get the best out of it. You know, having that kind of closed system. Right, well, on that note, shall we have a quick listen to one of our old tracks? I just noticed it's 30 minutes into the podcast, which is uh, overrunning our initial 50-minute deadline. Okay, (laughs) we better get a track in. (laughs) So, yeah, let's have a listen to probably... Well, certainly my favourite track that we did. It was the last one we really did before we kind of went our different ways. Uh, This song is called Body Hammer. Try to get them again. 
fortunate echo on that I think I'd recorded it twice on a different track yeah. and it came in again in the second track which is why it leads into itself again but it actually works really really well well that, that's what it is isn't it it's uh, happy mistakes yeah well a lot of it was yeah 
So I, th I think when we first started doing that, I kind of wanted to do a Trans-Europe Express, basically. Right. Drum beat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's just that I had that lovely kind of metronomic sound, and I just thought, yeah, that's cool. But then obviously it went somewhere else when we started to develop the song. I was living in Annie's land at the time, was I not? Was I not with Liz then? Which is really why we ended up having to call it a day because she wasn't really up for us making a racket in the flat all the That's time. That's right. So I was the end of that. <laughs> Surprisingly. Uh, but yeah, um, it was well structured. And uh, there's bits that I would change now listening back in it. I probably wouldn't have in the Bill and Ted samples. Uh -huh. No way, yes way. <laughs> you know, I'd probably revisit that. But... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's nice to not take yourself too seriously, no, I guess. And, I, and I think with our samples, we were quite kind of, uh, we were quite adventurous with the, the films that we took them from. It was a big part of our sound, wasn't it? Was taking the samples from films and TV shows that we loved. Yeah, so I think with uh, the sampling, it was uh, kind of reflected our love of films. I mean, we'd sit and watch films together, as people do when they're, you know, not working. <laughs> and uh, we'd sit and have coffees, watch films, have a few, yeah, few beers yeah. possibly, and we got to watch all these amazing, amazing films together. And uh, yeah. we'd have the um, mixing desk plugged into the telly and pick up samples as we went on the we fly. We just lift things as we heard them, that's right. Yeah. It was a, a few good examples of that. We'll play another track in a wee while called uh, Hard Edge, which mm -hmm. and it's sampled quite heavily from uh, Predator 2. Yeah. I remember watching the movie and thinking, I had to stop, I had to stop watching the film <laughs> and go and get my recorder and plug it into the TV because I had to sample that wee newsreader guy. Yeah. It became a bit of an obsession and quite annoying, I'm sure, to my sister or whoever, or you or whoever I was sitting with at the time. I say, hang on, pause the movie. I've got to go and record this little section. It's just, <laughs> just the way it was. I mean, if you think about a lot of our songs, uh, you know, they're kind of the a film is the key to the theme of the song you know so we had like hardware was a key obviously from the film hardware you know, theme yeah. to one of our songs yeah and then we had uh tetsuo uh, iron man yeah, body yeah. hammer they, they were kind of key to one Absolutely. of our songs so there's usually a song uh, uh, sorry a film at the base oh, of yeah, that. Well, yeah pretty much all of them Okay, so moving on, you and I were quite happy with the way we were sounding and then I moved out of my house and I moved into uh, the cottage. Yeah. Where I was able to have a bit more free range with making noises and making a racket. And so jamming sort of wrapped up a little bit. Yeah. We were doing a lot more and we got a guy called, uh, now I can't remember his second name, but Terry was his first name. Yeah, I can't remember his second name, it's terrible. But This all stems from me being asked to play keyboards for... Angel Hearts. Who were quite a kind of big up-and-coming Glasgow rock band, yeah. They were up-and-coming, they were up-and-coming Glasgow band and I don't know how, someone got touching me saying, listen, I hear you do samples and keyboards and all that. Do you fancy coming in and doing just a bit of keyboards and adding in samples and sound effects and stuff? And I said, yeah, no problem, went along and uh, I'd never met the band before, I had no idea who they were really. Yeah. I met Terry, the guitarist, uh, but that was it. Did the show. And halfway through the show, Terry came up to me and listen, we're just going to go off stage for five minutes. Can you just keep things going, keep the crowd happy? Right. And I'm okay. going, right, well, okay. So I'm sitting playing like weird, you know, elephant <laughs> samples and all that. And, you know, just any kind of shit I could find in the S10. To, going uh, through the decon sound uh, yeah, yeah, so, you know, all the decon samples were coming out. And then the next minute, the band come back on stage, but bollock naked. <laughs> and uh, much to the crowd's delight, everyone was going absolutely mental. I had no idea. I was like, what the hell's going on here? 
So they played the second half of their set naked, uh, and then the next day it was page three in the Scottish Sun. So excellent. I guess it worked out all right. Yeah. But then from that, so Terry, who was playing with them at the time, he um, had liked what we were doing. Yeah. And asked if he could come along and have a couple of jams. And uh, that's right. He was much younger than us, I think, wasn't he? He was about ten, maybe ten years younger than us. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, he was yeah. like, uh, young lads. But anyway, so he came along, started just, you know jamming with us, and we came up with this song called Hard Edge, which is quite different for us because it was much more guitar driven mm-hmm. you know, everyone else that we'd done up to that point had been well all since because that's pretty much all we had that was an interesting song because we had to negotiate you know before we were usually quite agreed on direction but bringing in another musician well bringing in a musician <laughs> who also <laughs> wants to contribute yeah. it's like okay you know like this is interesting because we're now kind of negotiating the sound yeah and it, it was a very interesting period uh, these were samples that you found actually from uh mm. Who was the guy again? It was some really famous speaker in the 60s. What was his name again? Was it Timothy Leary? Timothy Leary, that's the one, Timothy Leary. Okay, well, let's just have a quick listen to Hard Edge. Some great sounds there from Deconstruction. The inventor of the stachyphonic oxygenetic amplifier graphophonic deliverberator. Kind of hard to imagine the world before we had them, isn't it? I'm no good for anything except to be used. You're scapegoat. I'm used. Every day of my life, I want you to become what I am. I want you to enjoy the purest. I have the courage that I have, the good self in the vocals in that song <laughs> you didn't Quite sing many to hear me in yeah ah uh, there was two or three yeah a couple yeah yeah and uh, I think Liz was involved in this as well was she not just some backing vocals at some point that's right I think I surprised you by coming in with uh, the lyrics for that and then I said like that's right I put my hand up and said like I want to do the vocal for it and uh, I remember doing the first take and I just turned into like David Bowie basically you know <laughs> and I could just see you <laughs> at the corner of my eye creasing yourself with laughter <laughs> how could you do it listen to that sweet angel voice <laughs> but 
always quite like the contrast between a proper vote. There's Liz there. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah. A kind of contrast between, you know, my growling, you attempting to sing, and Liz actually able to sing. So it was like three <laughs> different styles going on. It's quite good. I quite liked it. I think it kind of suited the lyric as well, you know. It's a kind of, it's a bittersweet lyric, so. If I could revisit this, I would probably have made a couple of changes to the drum pattern. Right. <laughs> or one, one change. Yeah, yeah. Even one, even one drum roll or any kind of break would have been magic. But um, you know, those are the days before we knew that I actually mastered. Aye. I do like that song. I love the ending of it. I love the, I love the samples at the end. I think they work really, really well. Yeah. I mean, we're always good at intros and the outros. outros. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was nice to hear a real guitar I mean obviously we were using sample guitars in the S10 and all that but Aye. to have a real one was quite a novelty yeah I mean the sampling guitar was it was quite a nice sound but obviously it's quite limited we overused it yeah you know that one power strum <laughs> that was on the, the Roland S10 that we had yeah and that was in I don't know at least half a dozen tracks that we've done over the years. But it also was the time when dance music was coming out and, you know, stabs were the end thing. Yeah. So you could stab a guitar or stab an orchestra and it was absolutely fine. So it, it didn't seem out of place, but, it, you know, adding a proper guitarist in uh, gave it a lovely kind of nuanced feel to the tracks. Yeah. That was nice to hear that again. It's been a while. Yeah. One bit of gear that we did mention just there that we didn't talk about earlier was the Roland S10 yeah. keyboard sampler. I mean, was that not just a game changer for us? I mean, that's what I always dreamed of when I was making, you know, when I was making music when I was a kid, by bashing pots and pans and bouncing from one tape deck to another. I always dreamed of having something that could do what that could do. It was the most basic of basic samplers. I think I had a maximum sample time of eight seconds. Mm -hmm. uh, and you could split, remember that you could split it into four sections of two. That's right. I remember going into sound control in Glasgow as a very keen, you know, want, want to get a sample, want to get a sampler and went into the yeah. showroom. And the, the guy that was selling the keyboard said, oh, you know, well, obviously the one to get me with the Akai, which is what everyone was getting then, but they were, 1500 quid at the time there was no way it was out of the question and he said well if you can't afford that Roland have just brought out this keyboard sampler it's a lot cheaper it's a disc driven thing remember it was like wee mini discs that 
loaded up. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah it was a disc-driven uh, unit, which was great. The only mm. bad thing was you had to buy all these blank discs to record all your samples, and they, were, they weren't that cheap, but they were quite dear. That's right. We only had about 20, and that was it. So we had to, you know, I always hated the time when, right, okay, that says all the discs are full, which samples are going to have to go? You know, that was always the big question, because once they've gone, they've gone. You can't. It wasn't like nowadays, you can store it on your laptop and bring it back. Yeah. Once you deleted the disc, that was it, gone. But I think that's the thing. We weren't really uh, doing live stuff at the time. No. So it's not like we had to revisit those samples in a live format. No, that's true. But yeah, what a great bit of kit. I've actually still got it. And the last time I had it out, although the, obviously the disk drive is long gone, yeah. uh, it was working fine. It still worked. Still, all the keys played. It still sampled fine. It's now sitting in its case in Kevin's uh, garage. So if anyone's interested in buying a... <laughs> Roland S10 sampler. It's a vintage model. I mean, it's quite surprising it still works considering we battered those keys. I know, I know, I know it's incredible. Got orchestral stabs and guitar stabs. I know, but uh, it's still standing. Mm -hmm. Did it also not have some presets on it as well, or was it no. just the discs? No, no, it was all disc drive, right. no presets at all. Right. It came with a small selection of library discs, yeah. and all of a sudden we had these lovely full orchestra. I mean, remember the lovely orchestral soft strings? Uh, they were mm -hmm. fantastic, and that came with it. Well, also, I think, you know, the idea of sampling has been so influential on, on music. And, you know, for me, it's always been whether it's been about art or about music, there's an idea of kind of montage, you know, about sampling popular culture and having that influence in the music. So the sampler kind of allowed you to have that, you know, clearly identifiable yeah. uh, source yeah. within it, you know, which people could relate to. And also it let us be a bit adventurous with, I mean, I remember, I can't remember what song it was now, but I remember hitting a fire extinguisher with a drumstick to try and get a snare effect <laughs> and we right. combined a red fire extinguisher with a metal tray out of my mum's kitchen and so we sampled both and then, <laughs> then triggered them both at the same time mm -hmm. and it came out with this amazing it just didn't sound ends up like a snare but we used it as a snare sound and it was magic yeah stuck it through loads of effects and, yeah. and you knew yeah. it was a sound that absolutely nobody else on the planet had that was the beauty of it was the uniqueness well I think that was the influence of like industrial again yeah. you know bands like Test Department where they would just you know get a drumstick and batter a piece of metal see what it sounded like so yeah the S10 was a better fresh air for us and probably one of the songs that we used it to its best effect would have been Undead Lair yeah I think so there was a lot of experimental sounds we sampled a lot of other artists but then deliberately tried to totally warp the sound so you couldn't tell who was in it. I think Kate Bush is in there, as you know. Yeah, I think Kate Bush and the Pixies uh, bass line from one of their songs. Well, the Pixies bass line is the thing that we slow right down. It goes boom, That's boom, right. Boom. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just slowed right, right down. There's a cello in there which we sampled and it was from a film, but I can't remember what film it was from. But it was, it was really nice to combine those uh, very different sounds. And I think this song was basically an evolution from the sampler. It started in the sampler. Yeah, it was. I think it was probably the first one we did with the sampler. I think this is really what kind of got our juices going with it all. Yeah, it could be. It's a bit different. It's not. It's certainly not everyone's cup of tea. Um, I remember letting my mother hear this <laughs> and she looked at me as if I'd been possessed by some sort of demon. She's like, what in God's name is that racket? Well, did you not sample the Evil Dead as well for the... Yeah, well, that's in it as well. <laughs> Evil Dead, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> Fair enough, you know. <laughs> yeah. Right, okay, let's have a wee listen to Undead Lear then. The psycho vigilante killer continues his daily diet for murder. Bodies strung out, bodies with the skins ripped off, the hearts torn from the cadavers. And just recently, King Willie, the drunk. 
drug lord, the vicious drug lord found in an alley just around the corner with his head cut off and his spinal column torn from the body, a fitting demise to the Prince of Fowler. So did we invent death metal? 
Well, City Benz is something there. I'm not quite sure what that <laughs> what that you'd class that as. It was uh, that was decon. It's probably most extreme. I think. Yeah, I think so. Every time I let anyone else hear that, they kind of go, "What? Jesus, boys, really?" Well, I think is that what you're doing I mean, that's yourself? the thing. I mean, we were out on the fringes of you know what what you would call music back then, and we weren't really in a, a kind of social group that could understand where that where that music was coming from. But no, no, you know, we we still got on with it and did it anyway because it's the, what we wanted to do. And to be fair, I posted this on SoundCloud years ago, and. Uh, it's had quite a lot of love from yeah. people that have found it people that do like that kind of thing have come on and said this is something a bit different really like this well done guys good job so yeah you know, I suppose there are people out there that like minded individuals that like a bit of a bit of weirdness and I think with that that's just hit almost 50 minute mark so I think it might be nice to have one more before we go okay no listen absolutely because we haven't listened to hardware neither we have and I think hardware is quite an important one yep let's talk about hardware because it was an important one for loads of reasons funnily enough it was one of the first ones we did mm-hmm. which is why the production is a bit ropey on it it's quite muddy sounding yeah. which is a wee bit annoying I wish I knew a bit more about what I was doing back then but it was the first time that we used Juno 106, which had a sequencer on it. But the Juno 6 didn't have MIDI, so... That's right. Because you used the Juno 6 for the for the little break bit, didn't you? And that had a that had a running sequence going, and it was really difficult to try and get that to sync up, because we couldn't MIDI it up. We had to just play it yeah. and try and get it to sync up to the sequencer on the 106, which is quite challenging. I remember thinking, Oof, this is a bit of a nightmare, but we did. I think we got there in the end. Yeah. I remember writing these lyrics and thinking... These are shit hot, man. I thought the lyrics were great. I love the sample at the very end when it's the Bugs Bunny tune. Kicks in. And that's just genius. Perfect. Lots of this track that I really love. I just wish the production was a little bit better than it is. Unfortunately, it's a bit muddy, but, you know. I mean, I think that there's so many layers to this song as well that, you know, the production probably got muddied because we wanted to get so much into it. Yeah. And as well, and it, it was like I say, it was one of our very, very first tracks, and so it was a mm-hmm. it was a huge learning curve uh, for me. I'd never really used the uh, sequencer on the 106 before. Yeah, taught myself how to do that, as well as midding it up to the sampler for the first time. So we were actually having a MIDI chain going on, which was kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was so there was lots of new things going on. Yeah, but uh, I think overall it works pretty well. So um, shall we just have a quick blast of that just to finish the show off with? Sounds good. So here is uh, Hardware by Decon Nancy. <laughs>
And of course, the Iggy Pop speech from Hardware. There he is. Might have gone a bit overkill with the crow sort of sound effects. <laughs> you think so? Be sure to wear your shades. The radiation comes way up in the heat wave. Ain't expected to let up either. Weather control tell us it'll probably hit 110 downtown before nightfall. And for the good news, there is no fucking good news. I think the crow sample was from David Lynch. I think that was the end of a David Lynch film. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, you, you remember more than me then. <laughs> there were so many. Well, it's nice to have two of us. We can put the memories together. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> right, OK. Well, on that note, I think uh, we've covered everything. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks so much for uh, spending some time with me, Baz. And uh, ah, looking fun. forward to our next one. We're going to be talking about your evolution after you left Decon 90 and yeah. moved down to London and uh, progressed into the world of hardcore techno and uh, dark matter clear pattern. So that'll be on the next episode. I look forward to it. Thanks everyone for listening and uh, adios. Cheers. Bye now. Cheers. Right. Bye now. A blood black nothingness and dreadfully distinct against the dark. Recite your baseline. We're done.